Thank you all for your singing, and now we'll turn it over to Don. Well, I have never heard that song before, so you did very well. And um, it's actually very appropriate for the message this morning, and that is, <clears throat> teach me what it means that uh, meaneth you are not your own. Live your life through me, Lord, thy grace magnify, and in this body thyself glorify. Um, first of all, thank you for your prayers this week. It's been quite a week. And I appreciate uh, your thoughts, your prayers, your phone calls, your emails, your texts. Um, I did not have a stroke and uh, had the symptoms of one, but uh, they have ruled that out. And uh, they have said that I do have some brain damage, but that you all know already. (laughs) Brain damage that is common to people my age, so I think you probably all share the same if you're my age. I have a nerve uh, damage issue that extends from the base of my neck to my brain that creates symptoms that are similar to a uh, migraine and can cause all the uh, symptoms of an onset of a stroke. And so with face paralysis and the whole bit, um, it was alarming enough to go in, and uh, thankfully the Lord overruled in all of that. However... Um, I want to praise God for his manifold wisdom because uh, a lot of things have taken place in the last few days that uh, are amazing to me. And um, one of them is how the saints rallied together to uh, fill, out, fill in places that um, I, had, I was scheduled to, to do, and it shows me that uh, I'm not entirely needed. That's good. But we are um, part of a body and it shows that when one member suffers, all the members suffer, and also take, fill in where, where uh, one is lacking. And so I praise God for the evidence of, the working, uh, of His working within the body. Again, the manifold wisdom of God. <clears throat> um, I was in the um, ER, and uh, my daughter Sharon is a nurse, as you know. She has always wanted to work in the ER at Eden, and... Um, while I was there, I flatlined three times. Now, for you who know what flatline means, it means your heartbeat totally stops, you're dead. And three times they revived me, and they came in, and they uh, looked. When they came into the room, they realized that I was sitting up and very much alive, and that the flatlining was actually the machine and not me. So the um, things that they put on you to keep your heartbeat, see if it's there, um, had disconnected. And so the first time the nurse reconnected them and she walked out of the room and cursed the machine. And um, second time it happened, she ignored the uh, a little longer. And then uh, she came in and fixed the machine again. Third time, she just outright ignored the machine. The head of the um, ER He's the head of three departments, actually, the ER, the trauma center, and some other department. And uh, he is quite an interesting guy. He's a boots-on-the-ground kind of a um, manager, and he wears scrubs just like everybody else, and he is there, right there with his people. And I, uh, this time he came in because he had a cell phone call that one of his patients had died, and uh, that was me. So he walked in the room, and uh, he said... I said, hey, I, I died again, and apparently I'm, I've been resurrected. And so he looked at the machine, and he says, uh, has anybody ever told you that you're complicated? I said, my wife does all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so we had a nice little chat and uh, had an opportunity to, to talk to him a little bit. And uh, then Sharon came in, and um, we talked for a while, and I said, you know, maybe... This whole thing isn't because of me at all. Maybe it's because of you. Maybe the Lord wants you to get a job here. And so she talked to one of the nurses and talked to, you know, me for a bit. And then she was talking to Kristen. I just bowed my head and I said, Lord, I know his name is Donovan. I said, I know Donovan doesn't have to come in here again. (laughs) I didn't do that. (laughs) 
But I said, Lord, he's got staff, he's got nurses. I had two nurses taking care of me already. And I said, I know that he doesn't have to come in here, but if it's your will, and if it's within your uh, will for her to have a job here, would you please send Donovan in? I just thank you for whatever your will is. Amen. I opened my eyes and there he was standing at the door. I said, Donovan, come here for a minute. I want to introduce you to my favorite nurse and uh, introduce them. And so she has an interview in two weeks um, with him. He said to make sure that she puts on the uh, email that in her resume attachment, you know, complicated dad. That wasn't the term he used, but something like that. So praise the Lord for that. I, I, I did, Howard. <laughs> I, I appreciate that very much. I heard that uh, you did very well yesterday. I, I was pleased to, to hear that, and I, I said, well, there's another reason that uh, I'm in here and Howard's up there, so that was good. And the icing on the cake was last night I had a phone call from my long-lost daughter, and that probably is maybe the major reason that um, I was there. So praise the Lord for his manifold wisdom. And uh, we will look to the future to see what Elsie has in store for us. But for this morning, um, it's Luke chapter 20. <laughs> Luke chapter 20. And before we look at the passage this morning, <clears throat> I want to remind you where we are in this uh, section in Luke and what we looked at last week. You remember <clears throat> that Jesus told a parable as we looked at the passage last week, of a certain landowner who owned a vineyard and um, he turned it over to um, tenants who leased the property from him and then produced um, grapes and, and uh, wine. And the way it worked was that as, he, um, as, as vintage time came or as, as the wine season came to an end and they produced wine, he was to go and send his prophets, or I'm sorry, his uh, servants to collect the uh, wage, if you will, or the, or the um, rent for the, from the landowners or from the uh, tenant farmers. And so the Lord was using this parable to describe his relationship with Israel. He was the vineyard owner. He owned Israel, in a sense. And uh, the vineyard was leased to tenant farmers who were the religious rulers of the day. The vineyard was Israel. And he sent his prophets over and over and over again to collect fruit. And what the fruit he was looking for was repentance, a turning from unrighteousness, ungodliness to the Lord. And that's what he looked for. We read from Isaiah chapter 5, and I'll just read it to you. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant land. He looked for justice. That's fruit that he's looking for. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. <clears throat> and so Jesus predicted that the landowner would then, uh, well, that he would send his uh, prophets or his servants to collect. And he was indicating that God would send his prophets. And he did that. And every time a prophet came looking for repentance, for fruit of repentance, they would stone them, or they would beat them up, or they would kill them. And so the landowner would say, I know what I will do. I will send my son. They will surely respect him. And so here is Jesus, the Son of God, standing in front of the religious rulers of his day, saying, look, God has sent his son. I am the Son of God, and what are you going to do with me? And he tells them in advance what they're going to do. They're going to kill him, just like they had killed the others, and they will uh, throw him out of Jerusalem. For the scripture says in Luke chapter 20, and the chief priests and the scribes, uh, verse 19, the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. Jesus had just said that the religious leaders would seek to kill the son, and here they are in the very next verse plotting his death, his execution. But there's a problem. Israel is under Roman rule. The Jews do not have the authority to put somebody to death. And so being under Roman rule, they have to come up with a plan, a scheme, a way of causing Jesus to do something or say something 
that is so offensive to the Roman government that they will put him to death. They will execute him. And so they plotted and they thought and they wondered, how can we do this? How can we trap him in such a way that he will say something or do something that will be considered um, an offense and the Roman government will put him to death? They wanted him to break the Roman law. So one thing is certain in this whole passage here, there's premeditation here. They're thinking through what they're about to do. And so, verse 20, they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous, that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. Then they asked him, saying, Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly, and you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God in truth. So I'm going to stop there for a minute. What a phrase describing those whom they sent to trick him. It says they pretended to be righteous. <laughs> How do you pretend to be righteous? You have to act out the part. What do we call that, by the way? Hypocrites. It's hypocrisy. And that's really um, a similar word that is used here uh, in the Greek. And it's, it's describing a person who there's an act, there's a play that is going on at the local theater. And they hire somebody to come in and play a part. And they're to play a part that is totally contrary to the way they really are. So you could say, well, here's a man, and he has to play the part of a woman. That's how far apart it is, okay? And so here are these people who obviously, from the context of this, are not righteous. And they have to pretend to be righteous, And so they come to the Lord Jesus and they pretend, they put on this act as if they are very righteous people. But the Lord sees right through it. Pretended to be righteous. What does this tell you? Here are the religious rulers of the day. These are the people that are supposed to be leading the Israelites, the people of God, towards God. They're supposed to be the leaders leading in righteousness, leading in spirituality, and they cannot find a righteous man among them. And so they have to hire somebody, have to pick somebody and say, okay, at least pretend to be what we are supposed to be. Go and pretend to be righteous before the Lord. By their actions, they're demonstrating that they are far from God. They're faking it. They're hypocrites. So what do they say? Verse 21. Then they asked him, saying, Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly. Is that true? Does Jesus say and teach rightly? Yes. And you do not show personal favoritism. True? True. But you teach the way of God in truth. True? Everything they've said is true. But they're faking it. What does that mean? If they're pretending to be righteous and yet they're saying the truth, they're playing a bit part. What it means is they don't believe it in their heart. They're saying it with their lips, but they don't believe it in their heart. They're saying, oh, you're wonderful. We all know how great you are. We all know how truthful you are, how you uh, love the Lord and all these things. But they didn't believe it. Otherwise, what would they have done? They would have believed him. They would have followed him. So the things that they say are true. The problem is that they are saying it, but they don't believe it. They're trying to flatter him. They're trying to butter him up. And in buttering him up, they're trying to put him in a position where they've said, look, you're going to speak the truth. You're going to honor God. You're going to say the things that are right. Now we have a question for you. And here's the trap. After such accolades from the religious leaders, he's going to be forced to give them the answer that they expect. And so they develop this question in their minds that has only one right answer. And the question is this, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So think about it. Here's a question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not. There's only one of two answers you can have. Either yes or no. That's 
how narrow they have focused the question. Yes or no? Now here's the trap. No matter what he says, if he says yes, he's going to uh, create a problem. If he says no, he's going to create a bigger problem. And so now he's in this dilemma, so they think. What is he going to say? Yes? If he says yes, it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, the people are going to turn in revolt against him. Because none of them believe it's right to pay taxes to Caesar. Oh, they have to do it. They know that. But they don't think it's right. They're the Jews. They shouldn't be under Roman domination. They shouldn't be paying Caesar to rule over them because God should be ruling over them. The dilemma is not on the part of Jesus. The dilemma is on the part of the Jews. Why are the Romans ruling over them? Because they're far from God. Because God had sent his prophets to them. He had asked for fruit and they did not provide fruit. And so God placed a Gentile nation over them and they were under bondage to the Gentile nation. And that God really was trying to show them, look, you're far from me. I am not ruling over you. You are being ruled over by uh, Gentile domination. So if he says, yeah, pay taxes to Caesar, they're going to say, well, I'm not going to listen to this guy anymore. Why should I listen to him? We don't agree with that. We want him to reign over us and to destroy the Roman government so that we are back in charge of our land that God has given to us. Would they really submit themselves to God at that point? No. So there's a problem if he says yes. But there's a greater problem if he says no. Because if he says no, and you have a government reigning over you that is requiring you to pay taxes, guess what? You have now pitched yourself against that government. You're in rebellion against the government. You are creating an insurrection and I'll tell you something, if you study Roman history, you will see that they were death on insurrections. That's literally, they would put people to death for insurrections. They may have had freedom of speech, but it was only so far. And when people would rise up against the Roman government to create uh, this kind of uh, insurrection, they would be tried and they would be hanged. That's the greater problem. And that's exactly what they want Jesus to say. Because then they will drag him to the courts, they will put him before the Roman judicial system, and they will put him to death. And they will be rid of Jesus forever. And they're plotting against him. And now he is in this crisis, if you will, in their minds. Does he say yes or does he say no? There can only be one answer. Really? He's God. And God, over and over and over and over again in history and in our lives is not limited to one of two answers. As I said earlier today, God is, we see the evidence of God's manifold wisdom, and we see it here in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it says, verse 23, but he perceived their craftiness, and he said to them, why do you test me? Show me a denarius. Look at it. Look at it. May I say one thing about this? Why did Jesus say, show me a denarius? Because he probably didn't have a denarius. He died with the clothes on his back, and even there, they stripped him of his clothes. He was poor among us. He is God, yet he owned nothing in this world. And so he asked to ask to borrow a coin. Show me a denarius. And as they show him a denarius, he asks them a question. Whose image and inscription does it have? And they answered him, Caesar's. That's right. That's what he looks like to me. Tiberius Caesar. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. But they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people, and they marveled at his answer, because he was not forced to say yes or no. And they kept silence. Now, Reach into your pocket and take out a quarter. And if you don't have one, look at the screen, I hope. They're moving, I can tell. Here we go. And I want to ask you a question. Are we there? Well, then pull out the quarters from your pockets. <laughs> and I want somebody to tell me, show me, the, what is it, who is it on there? Washington. George Washington, President of the United States of America. 
And he's saying, render to Washington the things that are Washington's. That's what he's saying. Render to Washington the things that are Washington's. The IRS wants some money out of you? Pay up. Who put Washington's picture on there? Washington. Then give back to Washington what they gave to you. It's not yours. They made it. Give it back. Whose picture is on all the money? Some president, some dead president. Then give it back. It doesn't belong to you. Whose image and inscription does it have? Give to Washington the things that are Washington. Pay your taxes. I want you to turn with me to Romans 13, 1 through 7. Romans chapter 13, 1 through 7. There's Washington now. How many of you love paying your taxes? Not a hand in the audience. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. Verse 1. For there is no authority except from God. And the, the authorities that exist are appointed by God. What this means is this. Every human government, good, bad, or indifferent, is appointed by God. And God will get the glory even from the wicked that he raises up. It's hard for us to imagine that. Even in Roman times, when Caesar was in power and Christians were being killed, this verse was written. Render to uh, Caesar, the things that are uh, Caesar's. But Paul is writing here in Romans, and he is saying the same thing. At a time when Christians are being persecuted and slaughtered, and he is telling us, God appointed that government over you. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. And in our audience this morning, we have an authority from God sitting right in the back in a yellow shirt. And we have another one over here in a plaid shirt. These are men who have been appointed by our government to keep the law. And if you cross them, you haven't offended them personally, although you might, but you have offended the law that they are told and they have sworn to uphold. Is that right? You break the law, you're a lawbreaker. And they have every right and authority to bring the law down hard upon you because that is the, the government's responsibility. But also they are called, what kind of officers? Peace officers. And why are they called peace officers? Because they are appointed by God to keep the peace in our land. And I'll tell you something. If you think things are bad today and, and the craziness is going on, the reason it isn't worse is because we have peace officers. I'll tell you that right now. It's true. The reason we do not have anarchy, and I think we are moving as the days go on closer and closer to it, but the reason we don't have a full-blown anarchy now is because of the authorities that God has placed over us. They're God-given. They're God-appointed. They're right. And so that's what he's saying here. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists the ordinance of God. When you resist authority, you're resisting God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. So I don't know about you, but as I'm driving down the freeway at 70 miles an hour, 75 miles an hour, 80 miles an hour, and it's a posted speed limit of 65, and I see a peace officer, what do I do? That's a lawbreaker. And I know that I'm breaking the law, otherwise I wouldn't slow down. But if I'm always driving like Matt Clark at 60 miles an hour in a 65 mile an hour zone, sorry Matt, I have nothing to fear apart from the crazy people behind me that are going to hit me. Okay, But I have no fear of judgment, do I? 
Why? Because I'm doing what is right. And that's what he's saying here. You don't want to fear the authorities. You don't want to fear about going to jail. You don't want to fear these things. Then do what is right. Do good. You want to be arrested? You want to be put in prison? You want to live your life in jail? Then continue doing evil. But if you want to, do, if you want to be living in peace, the peace officers will never hurt you if you're doing what is right. I don't see Tom and I don't see Angela or any other police officer chasing people down who are doing right. Okay? It would be nice if they'd put the lights on every once in a while. Pull your... I just want to tell you how grateful I am that you weren't speeding here. <laughs> wow. <laughs> grateful you told me that. <laughs> Try it sometime, guys. <laughs> you do what is good, you'll have praise from the same. Verse 4, for he, is a mini- for he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. But because of this, you also pay taxes. How do you think they get paid? They get paid through your tax dollars and through the tickets they write. That's part of your tax. Okay? You have roads. You have sidewalks. You have streetlights. You have lights that light the way. You have a military that is protecting you. You have all sorts of things that you benefit from. And you live in a society that allows us to come here together today and preach the word of God without fear. That is because God has appointed a government over us that allows these things. And so we pay taxes to continue to support that freedom that we so enjoy. It's right. Render therefore to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. The word that is used is render taxes. It means to pay back, to give up. Again, I ask you the question, who prints the money? Washington, I know Treasury, but it's Washington, essentially, right? Whose imprint is on the coin? Washington. So you're paying back or giving up the coinage to the ones who made it. But the Lord raises the bar by adding something to his statement. He didn't just say pay your taxes. He said this, render to God the things that are God's. Can I ask you a question? Whose likeness and image do you bear? The Bible says in Genesis 1, Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Can I say something to you, believers? Paying your taxes is the easy part. Rendering to God is the part that we have the hardest job with. Rendering ourselves to God is is what we honestly resist the most. And yet the Bible says in Romans 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice to God, holy, and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so let's just say it this way. Let Washington have its coins, and let God have his people. Let God have us. Let's, let God have um, our lives. And it silenced them. It silenced them. They couldn't answer that. It wasn't yes. It wasn't no. It was rendered to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Well, they're quiet now, but the Sadducees have just begun. And that's next. They were the liberals of the day, the Sadducees. They didn't believe in anything supernatural. Nothing. 
They didn't believe in anything supernatural. No miracles, nothing. And so it led them to not even believe in the resurrection. And uh, their attitude was, well, it was never spoken of directly in the Old Testament, so it doesn't exist. There is no resurrection. And that was their whole mindset. Nothing miraculous, nothing... um, They didn't believe in anything supernatural. Didn't believe in a resurrection. And so they thought about it. Okay, so how are we going to trap them? How can we come up with the greatest question to pose before the Lord Jesus and trap him and show him how foolish it is to believe in the resurrection? And so they came up with this grand hypothetical question, and uh, we see it here. Verse 27, Then some of the Sadducees who deny that there is a resurrection came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a, man, if a man's brother dies, having a wife, and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Well, so far, what they're saying is true. Moses did write that. And there is a law in the Old Testament known as the Leveret Marriage Law. And here's the way it, it works. I'm married to Christa. And uh, we are married for a year, let's say, and we have no children. And then I die, and I have a brother. I don't really, but if I did have a brother, my brother was required under Leverett marriage law to marry my widow, as long as he wasn't married, to marry my widow and have a son and raise up that son for me with my name. I don't mean Don, I mean Robertson. Okay? so that the family inheritance would not be lost to another. And so he was really, in a sense, giving up his right in honoring me. That was the law. Now, we have a wonderful, wonderful story of this in the book of Ruth. Ruth was married, and she, her husband died. And she died, or he died, childless. And Ruth came back to Bethlehem, to Israel, and she was a widow, And she had no children. And so the natural thing for her would be to to have um, her husband's brother raise up a child for for him, for her husband. But the brother had also died. And so now we're left with no direct brother, but we we have to now go to the next distant relative. And there were two of them. One was Boaz and one was another. And the first one was offered to have Ruth. And he had the right to redeem her and the right to raise up a child for her. But it meant that if he did that, it was going to destroy his own family inheritance. And he says, I don't want any part of this. And so the custom, both in um, Israel and in the scripture, was for a man to take his sandal and knock it across the guy's face and throw it on the ground. You know, that was, they did it nicely. But, I mean, it really was the custom. And... Um, Boaz says, hey, if you do redeem Ruth, guess what? Here's what you get with you. You have to take Ruth too. It's not just you're redeeming the land and getting more land. You've got to take her too and raise up a child. Oh, I don't want that. No, thank you. And Boaz did the, took the responsibility as the nearest kinsman at that point and gave her a child. She ended up being in the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ. Marvelous story. Wonderful story. That's the law. That's the law of Israel at the time. And so this Leverett marriage law is hot on their minds, and they're going, okay, let's take some crazy story and, and uh, put it before the Lord and just show how stupid it is to believe in a resurrection because of the dilemma it's going to cause. And so now they say, okay, here's the story. Uh, let's read it. Verse uh, 29. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife died without children. The second took her as a wife. He died childless. Then the third took her. And in like manner, the seven also. So each one dies, each one dies, each one dies, each one dies. And they left no children and died. Verse 32, I love this verse. Last of all, the woman died also. And uh, people often have said this, or I've heard preachers say this often, she just died of exhaustion. (laughs) Can you imagine going through this seven times and dying childless? And then she died too. So, here's the stupidity of all of this. If there really is a resurrection, when you get to heaven, if there is a heaven, whose wife is she going to be? Because she had all seven of them. Now, that's a real dilemma. That's a real problem. Okay? It's a problem on earth, having multiple uh, families together. But can you imagine seven? Now you're in heaven for eternity, all seven of them. Oh, my goodness, what am I going to do? 
It seems so absurd that they could, couldn't possibly be any answer for this dilemma. Verse 34, And Jesus answered them and said, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age in the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die any more. For they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But even Moses, remember it was Moses that they brought up as a, you know, Moses wrote this. Well, now the Lord goes back to Moses and he says, But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised. When he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. But after that, they dared not question him anymore. Well, although the main question has to do with the resurrection, there are a number of things that come out in this passage that we would not know otherwise. And so I want to just mention these to you as we go. First of all, it's important for all of us to know and understand this. Marriage is for this life only. It is for this life only. It is not meant for heaven. In heaven, it's different. It is a unique relationship on earth between one man and one woman until death do you part, or death doth, death doth us apart, or whatever we say in uh, old English. The unique relationship of one man to one, and what I should say is one living man to one living woman, okay, together for life. God instituted marriage in the Garden of Eden, and the purpose of the marriage relationship was that the two should become one and that they should procreate and fill the earth. I think we've done a pretty good job of that, okay? There's one thing we've done well is we've procreated and we have filled the earth. Interesting comment just on the side here. After the flood, when um, Noah and his family left the ark, God basically gave the same command. Go in and fill the earth. Fill the earth. God's purpose is a full, abundant, fruitful relationship on earth. Perfectly normal, perfectly right, in the right context. Okay? So, second thing we learn here is that it's a relationship between one woman and one man. And that there never was and that there never will be a homosexual relationship in God's mind when it comes to the marriage relationship. End of story. Okay? That is what he's talking about here. That's how he designed it. That's how he set it up. That's what he consistently says from beginning to end. And so I'm sorry, no matter what our society is doing, it's just wrong. Okay? So you can take that to the bank, and if you want to send me before the governor and have me accused, that's fine. But that is the biblical teaching on this uh, subject. Uh, anything else is considered strange flesh. Third, it is a relationship between one woman and one man, and that intimacy was never meant to be shared by anyone else apart from your legal husband or your legal wife. Okay, And so immorality is another area that it was not designed by God. It was meant for an intimacy between one man and one woman for life. Fourth, marriage is until death. Okay? It's not only taught uh, in the Old Testament, it's taught in the New Testament that at the point of death, the person is then free, the remaining person, the living person, is then uh, free to marry again because that union, that relationship, ends at death of one uh, or the other partner. And so on earth, a widow or a widower is free to remarry upon the death of the other. Number five, again, marriage is until death. Meaning that in heaven, our relationship does not continue with our husband or our wife as it did on earth. Okay? It does not mean, when, when Jesus says this, it does not mean that we won't recognize our husband or our wife or that we won't love our husband or our wife. But there is no longer a need for procreation in heaven. Heaven is populated by those who believe. It's not populated by procreation. And so the, the sexual union 
that relationship ends on earth. It's over, okay? The angels are sexless. Do you know that? There is no procreation among angels. And he says here that we will be like the angels in that sense. We will no longer have a need for procreation. Our relationship is different in heaven than it is on earth. And I know some of you are troubled by that, but it's not going to be, oh, sad. It's actually going to be better. God isn't, uh, doesn't have heaven in store for us where there are no more tears, no more sorrows, no more crying, no more death, no more all these other things. And he says, but I'm going to really ruin this one for you. Okay? He doesn't do that. He's going to say, look, in heaven, that re- relationship that you so valued on earth is going to be so much better than anything you've ever anticipated. And it's not going to be just with your wife or just with your husband. It's going to be including all saints of all times. And there's going to be such an intimacy and union among us that far surpasses anything we've known on earth. And so it's for this life only. It's not going to be in heaven, that same relationship. Of course, this destroys the whole fantasy of the Mormon church too, of celestial heavens and repopulating planets and all this kind of nonsense that they've come up from the pit. I mean, really, that's where it came from. So it is um, different. So in heaven, relationships continue, as I say, but on a different basis than they do on earth. I know it's hard to grasp how it could be any better, (laughs) but it will be. It'll be so much better than anything we've ever known. The interesting thing is the Lord is really giving us a hint. He's kind of for just a second pulling back the curtain just so we can glimpse in, but it's like a peephole. We can only see a little bit of what's coming, and the rest is closed to us. We don't have a full revelation of what that relationship is going to be like. But it's going to be good, I'll promise you that. It's going to be great. In heaven, one of the things he does say here in this passage, there will never, 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 never be a separation again. Wow. I'll tell you, this week was quite a week (laughs) in many, many ways. A week when last Saturday, John Love's a week ago Saturday, John Love closed his eyes in San Lorenzo and he opened them in heaven. There was separation in that family. And John and Peggy are no longer together as a husband and wife. There's a separation that will never take place in heaven. Never. Some of you have experienced the loss of loved ones, the loss of a husband, the loss of a wife. It's never going to happen in heaven. Never. Never. That sorrow, that pain, that uh, is so real and is so hurtful to our hearts does not exist in heaven. It doesn't. And he says that so plainly here, nor can they die anymore. That's a promise that we can go to the bank on. That's a promise from the Lord Jesus Christ. In heaven, it says, we will be equal to the angels and our sons of God. Now, that does not mean, and I want to clear up a misunderstanding of this passage. Sometimes people look at this passage and they go, oh, isn't that wonderful? We become angels. And people, when they face death, often have these fantasies of things that they've either heard or seen on TV or, you know, touched by an angel. What's, what was her name? You know? The idea being uh, that somehow we die and we become angels and then we're looking over our family and taking care of our... That's nonsense. That is not a biblical thought at all. And that is not what the Lord Jesus is saying here. He is not saying we become angels. He says we become like the angels. In what way do we become like the angels? Well, number one is we'll never die. Okay, that's one way we become like angels. Number two, we are sexless. We are no longer male and female in that sense. And there's no longer a need for procreation. That's another way we're like the angels. Another way that we're like angels is that we are going to be revealed as sons of God. Right now, if you go out into the streets and you go, Hey, folks, I'm a son of God. They're going to commit you. They're going to send you to the funny farm. They go, right, you're a son of God, right. But we are, if we believe in God. We are his sons. 
But we're not recognized as sons right now. The world does not know us any more than it knew him. But as sons of God, we are going to be revealed. And when will that take place? At the resurrection. Good tie-in. Okay, that's what the Lord is doing. He's coming right back full circle to the resurrection. And he's saying, look, you are going to be revealed. You're not revealed right now as the sons of God, even though that's what you are. But when the resurrection comes, you are going to be revealed as God's sons. Wonderful story. Revealed to all. So the fact of resurrection is what Jesus is teaching about here. Um, the fact of resurrection is actually further taught in 1 Thessalonians. I want to turn there for a moment. 1 Thessalonians 4, in verse 13. It's a familiar passage. It says this, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus, those who have died believing in Jesus. Verse 15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. We may die. If the Lord does not return first in our lifetime, we will die. That's what happens to all of us. And our bodies lay in the grave. And we, those who are believers are called the dead in Christ. That means that we believe in Christ, but we have died. When Jesus comes back at the rapture, we're going to talk about that more in the next couple of weeks. When Jesus comes back at the rapture, this is what is going to take place. He is going to shout, the voice of an archangel, the trumpet of God will sound, and those who are dead, who have believed in Christ, rise first. And if we happen to be alive at the time he comes back, it says, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up with them. With who? With the dead in Christ who rose first. With them in the clouds, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And there will be no more death after that. That's it. Dead is, is gone for us. It's over. So, Jesus, to prove the resurrection, points back to a passage in Exodus 3, verse 6. I'm going to read the whole passage, uh, Exodus 3, verse 1. And this is what he refers to. It says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. This is called the burning bush passage. So he looked, and behold, and the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. Well, I would too. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Listen very carefully to the next words. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Now, I want to ask you a question. Think about your Bible history here. He says to Moses, I am the God of your father, Abraham. In history, was Abraham still living at Moses' time or not? He was dead. I am the, I am the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, alive or dead? Dead. And Jacob, alive or dead? Dead. Physically, they were in the grave. But he doesn't say, I was the God of your father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what does that tell you? That they are still alive. Their bodies may be in the grave, but they are very, very much alive. And, they, and he is still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
at this time in history, right now. He is the God of John Love, whose body was put to rest in uh, the cemetery this week. He is, and he could say very easily, I am the God of all those who believed. They're still living. Their bodies may be in the grave, but they are still very, very much alive. And so he says here very plainly, I am. And the argument of his whole teaching on resurrection rests with one word. And it's I am, not I was. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it means that there has to be a resurrection because God is not the God of the dead, but he is the God of the living. Therefore, God must raise the dead. And it says, for all live to him. And that demonstrates for us that the condition of departed saints is that they are very much alive. Their bodies may be in the tomb, but they themselves are very much alive to God. And this is the great comfort for all believers, that our departed loved ones, who were also believers, are in the very presence of God. For the Bible teaches us very plainly, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It's that fast. And that's why I say with absolute confidence that John, as a believer in Jesus Christ, could close his eyes in San Lorenzo that moment and open them wide in heaven that same moment. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Do you believe it? And there is coming a day when God, by His power, will raise these mortal bodies and and we will no longer be restricted by the restrictions that we face today. And He will give us glorified bodies that are fit for heaven because these bodies aren't. These bodies decay. These bodies fall apart. These bodies die. But we will have a body that is fit for heaven and that we can live for eternity in the presence of our glorious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's a, it's a relationship with the Lord that will never end. He says that. We will never die. And it will allow us to glorify Him in ways that we never knew possible. Man, I'm longing for that day. I thought I might be facing it this week. And the Lord said no. But I'm longing for it. And I hope you are too. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we worship you. Our worship is so limited. It is so pathetic in comparison to what it could be, Lord. I say that of myself. And Lord, I just cry out to you that with the limitations of these mortal bodies, I pray, Lord, that our praise and our worship and our honor to you would be sweet. Lord, I pray that we would not only render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, but to God the things that are God's. Our lives, our hearts, our souls are everything. Lord, help it to be so in this life. And that we might give you the honor on earth as it is done in heaven. We pray for this in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen.